0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter twenty. We read earlier from Matthew's account of the resurrection of that morning, and uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, I guess it was last week, we handed out or we put on the table back there some uh, readings for the week, just to kind of walk you through the week and help you understand what's uh, happening throughout the week of uh, we call Passion Week or Holy Week. And it's always interesting to sit down and to read the different accounts of the Gospels uh, of the last week of Jesus' life and what he experienced and encountered. So this morning we come to John chapter 20. I'm getting a little bit of a ring or feedback up here if you can adjust that please. Thank you. So John chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning. So let's read together. And were going to the tomb, so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that he had spoken these things to her. Lord, as always, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of your word, and that you would be our teacher and our guide, and that you would reveal things to us, and that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are on the first day of the week. The first day of the week was Sunday, according to God's numbering from how he created the days in creation. And so the first day of the week, which was Sunday, now remember Jesus was crucified on the previous Thursday. Remember the Jews counted the days from sundown to sundown. So sundown Wednesday became the Thursday, which was the high Sabbath. It was the Passover day, the 14th of Nisan. And so from 6 p.m. Thursday, uh, he had the, uh, the last supper with the disciples, and then he went through that evening. Uh, they left, and they went out to the garden. Remember, Jesus prayed. Judas had left earlier to go betray him while Jesus was praying in the garden there on Wednesday night, which was probably moving into Thursday morning by our accounting. The people came and they took him away. Uh, the, the, the legion of, of men, the guards, came with Judas Iscariot. And they took Jesus away. And what we looked at on Good Friday was uh, briefly, we looked at the six trials that Jesus went through. Through the night, those illegal trials that were held during the night, during the, the wee hours of the morning, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., Jesus was being shuttled around between the different rulers and leaders. By the time they got to the morning on Thursday, which is still uh, the Passover day, it's the Sabbath, then they were. Uh, preparing Jesus to crucify him. We know that he was crucified. He was nailed to the cross about 9 a.m. on that Thursday morning. Uh, Around noon, that darkness came over the whole land, and it was a very ominous thing. And then we know at that point as we, we read the gospel accounts that God poured out his wrath for mankind's sin on his Son, thus fulfilling everything written in Isaiah 53. And if you're not familiar with that, please go read it. It's about the suffering servant. It's about the Messiah. And it was about all that he was experienced on that day of the wrath of God for the sin of mankind. Now, it's easy at this point to sort of just be divorced from this and kind of, we can regard this as a story and we can hear this as sort of factual, kind of go, well, that's interesting. That's nice. But we need to not miss the point that what God did to his son on that day and pouring out his wrath on the cross and on his son was done because of you and me, because of our sin. It's easy to think of the collective sin of the whole world. And it is true. It was the sin of the whole world, the weight of the sin of mankind. And who knows by the time we get to the end of the age, how many people will have ever lived on the earth? But when you consider we're over 8 billion on the planet at this point in time, and according to the Jew- Jewish calendar, we're, we're, we're in year like 5600 or something like that. And you think about all the people who've ever lived and died and all the people that ever will live and die until the Lord comes, whenever that is. And the sin of all of those people, the weight of that sin being poured out on the cross on Jesus Christ And we don't want to miss that. You see, one person's sin, Adam and Eve, their sin was enough to send him to the cross. But when you consider the weight of the sins, if such a thing could be weighed, consider if we could take all the water out of all the oceans and weigh it and call that the weight of sin. How could that possibly be placed on the shoulders of, as a burden upon one man to suffer. And yet that's what God did. And so around noon on that day that Jesus was crucified, the weight of sin was poured out on him. The wrath of God was poured upon him. And then finally that dark cloud passed and Jesus gave up his spirit and he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And as he did that, the veil in the temple was torn in two. Around 3 p.m., they took him down off of the cross to get him into the grave quickly uh, before sunset, again, roughly around 6 p.m., so that the Passover meal could be eaten by everyone. And so as that was all happening, they went through the balance of what we know as Thursday night, which was really uh, Friday morning according to their calendar, and then went through Friday and then Saturday And here we are on Sunday morning on the third day, the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, and while it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Mary Magdalene is such an interesting person. She was a harlot. She was a person out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. That was her salvation experience. Can you imagine? Being freed from the tyranny and the burden of Satan, being demon-possessed, And the things that she had done as a harlot, no doubt, uh, horrible things, atrocious things. And so she was staying close to Jesus. She was wanting to be there on that that morning uh, to go and to finish anointing his body for his burial. The other gospels tell us about this. And we know that she was one of many Marys. The other night we had this discussion, I think it was in the men's group on Monday night, and... We were talking about this, and I think we pretty quickly counted up to five Marys uh, who are in, mentioned so far in the Gospels, but this is Mary Magdalene. And so she uh, was there wanting to anoint the Lord's body <clears throat> and to prepare him for his burial, since it was too hasty on that afternoon to uh, prepare him properly. And so when she got there, she saw that the stone had been taken away. This was an unusual thing. It was a perplexing thing because when a stone was rolled in front of a tomb, it usually took several men and probably some kind of levers involved, like, you know, a log, you know, putting a rock there and using a stick to sort of pry it and make it move. This was not something that anyone could just come alongside, like we have doors today and we can just push them and they open so easily. This was probably something like a 2,000 pound stone or something like that. And so she came and she's standing there. Um, and trying to figure out what to do. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. This is how John referred to himself in his gospel. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. He's not there. And they're surprised. Now Jesus had told them many times, hadn't he? And we'll look at this in a few minutes. That he would have to die and that he would rise again on the third day. And yet from the very outset in almost all of the gospel accounts, when the people went to the tomb, they weren't expecting to find a resurrected Jesus. They were expecting to see him laying on that cold slab, his dead body beginning to decay. And so she's saying, I don't know where they've taken him. They've, they've laid him somewhere else. They've moved his body. And I think this is a lesson for us that we can't allow just our normal logical flow of thought to take over our understanding of things. If she was looking at the situation as were the others, the other gospels tell us the other ladies came and then of course Peter came and John came and whatnot and they looked and they all kind of had the same thought. He's he's not here, where is he? Where could he be? And they had missed the fact that Jesus said he would not... Stay in that grave. The grave would not hold him. So they didn't believe this was possible. But I'm sure they must have known the story, the miraculous story of his birth. Where the Holy Spirit came to Mary, his mother, and said, Mary, you will be with child. You will, you will bear the Holy One of Israel. And in that story, as the angel came and spoke to her, and then later she went and visited with her cousin Elizabeth, The angel said, for with God, nothing will be impossible. In Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was speaking in in parables to them. And as he was teaching them, they were astonished. He said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus uh, was there healing a, a child. And the man said, if you can do anything, Lord, if you can help us, please, please have compassion on us. And in Mark 9, 23, Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Indicating to him that faith, believing in Jesus, believing in who he is, believing in his power. And today, believing in his resurrection. He says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. This is where the man said, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief, a prayer I pray frequently and I'm sure you do as well. And then in Mark chapter 14, as Jesus was praying there in the garden, Mark's account, which is really Peter dictating to Mark, said, Abba, Father, this is Jesus praying, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So all of these expressions of everything is possible with God, anything is possible with God. With men, things are impossible, but with, with God, things are possible. And so in that moment, of course, there on Sunday morning, they had forgotten all the things that Jesus had said. They, it would seem that they never believed those words that he said, even though he said them so many times. And in verse 3 of John 20, we're told that Peter went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. They ran together. The other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. That was John. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, verse 6, following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So Peter and John get there. John stops, was sort of looking in from the outside, didn't go into the tomb, but then Peter kind of rushes past him. And he goes in and he wants to see what was happening. And I'd like to draw your attention to verse 5, the word looking. Verse 6, the word saw. And then in verse 8, the word saw. You may say, why? Because these are three different words that are used in the original language. And here's what they mean. In verse 5, the word looking means to glance in or to take a quick look. This is what happens when I go to the refrigerator looking for the ketchup and can't find it because it's behind the milk. And then my wife has to come and get it for me. I just—I glance, I take a quick look, but she knows where it is. In verse 6, the word saw there means to look carefully and to observe. So the first looking was just, hey, just a quick glance. The second saw in verse 6 was to look carefully to observe, almost as if you're studying it. But then the word in verse 8, excuse me, uh, yeah, verse 8, where it says, the other disciple came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. That word means to perceive with intelligent comprehension. In other words, John is saying when he went in and looked, he had an aha moment. The dots were connected for him, so to speak. And he understood. Peter was there trying to understand. He had made a quick glance, he was kind of like, what's going on here? Where's Jesus? He's not here. And then he looked carefully and he observed and we're told that he saw the linen cloths lying there. And then he went in and he saw that the handkerchief that had been by his head or over his face most likely was not there, but it was folded neatly and laid aside. Now, for those of you who don't like to make your bed, this is biblical justification for making your bed. If Jesus can get up out of the grave and make his bed, maybe you can as well. So this is encouragement for you and for you kids, you teenagers, and you people who don't like to make the bed. Here you go. So hopefully you'll remember this today and feel guilty when you don't make your bed. That was the intent. Just kidding. But they saw this, right? They, they looked and they saw this and they were looking at it like, Jesus is not here the cloths are there, his handkerchief over his face is folded neatly. Remember the other people, the Romans and the, um, the people from the Sanhedrin, they had come by later and they said, listen, we've got to find a way. We get to tell people that some, his disciples stole his body. Somebody stole his body. He's not resurrected. He's just They moved his body to hide it from us. Now they're going to make up the story that he's resurrected. But if someone were in a hurry to steal the body and to get it out of there, do you think they would have folded things up? You know, this is evidence to us, just in this little story here of the the handkerchief that was over his face being neatly folded and laid aside. That's a detail that if you were a forensic guy and you go in afterwards and you're trying to put together, you know, like a crime drama like CSI Jerusalem going in there looking and you're looking at the evidence and you're like no this is there's no evidence here that someone came and just like grabbed the body and tried to rush out with it things would have been knocked over things would have been on the ground things would not have been folded so peter and john there at the scene looking at it trying to understand what was happening and notice john reminds them as well as himself he says for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead Now, in John chapter 2, very early on in his ministry, Jesus uh, had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They, of course, thought he was talking about the literal temple that Herod was still finishing it had been in process for 46 years. And we're told in John 2.21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And then in John 2.22, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said, I'm going to rise from the dead. In Matthew chapter 12, that's where Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, indicating that he would be resurrected. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 Uh, Jesus from that time began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised the third day. A little later in Matthew 20 and verse 19, uh, Jesus again is telling them we're going up to Jerusalem. This is the last time he's going up to Jerusalem. And he says, and they will deliver him, the Messiah himself, to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. So Jesus went, there's, there's many more examples of this where he told them this over and over and over. And a part of understanding this is to help us because how often you know, do we read God's word? And as we do, you know, we go through and we go back and we read a passage again. And as we come to it, it's like we're seeing it for the first time and we've forgotten it. And listen, if the disciples forgot these incredibly vital things that Jesus said to them, you know, we will as well. That's why it's so important for us to keep our nose in the book and to read and to let God's word over and over and over examine us and wash us so that we'll begin to have that kind of experience that John had when he went in, where he would perceive and understand. That's what we want to do. And then we're told that after that experience, the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary, verse 11, stood outside the tomb weeping. They went away, but she's still standing there going, Nobody's given me any answers yet. I still don't understand what's happening. Where is he? He's supposed to be here. And so she was weeping. She was crying. She was distraught. She just didn't understand. And she looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord. Now, she's having a conversation with angels, so she must not have realized that they were angels. But again, in standing there, you kind of get the idea this whole scene takes place. She's there. Peter and John come in, and they look around, maybe have a few words. They leave. She's still standing there. How did two guys get in there? I mean, there's no questioning of that. She just has this conversation with them. And notice we're told there in verse 12 that these two angels were in white, sitting there, one at the head and the other at the feet. Now, I want to suggest something to you this morning. Don't take this as the truth, but... In, his, in Exodus chapter 25, let me read this to you, Exodus 25:17. this is talking about the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. It says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and, and half its width. And you shall make two cherubim, these were angels, of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, uh, of one piece, with the mercy seat. Now I wonder, as she walks in, in the place where Jesus' dead body had been lain, that as she sees these two angels, one at the head, one at the feet, to me that just conjures up in my mind this picture of the mercy seat. Remember when Jesus died and he cried out his last breath and he said, It is finished. You know, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit, we're told in the Gospels that the veil in the temple was torn in two. I just wonder to me if this picture in Exodus 25 of what God had them do on the earth and building the Ark of the Covenant, and we are told in the book of Hebrews that the temple. And the ark and all of that were a picture of heavenly things. They were earthly enactment of what was going on in heaven. An earthly picture of heavenly things. If this couldn't be pointing to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Because his blood, as it were, were sprinkled on that mercy seat. So that when God looked down from heaven, he would no longer see our sin, remember that picture is in the Passover that they were told to kill the blood of that innocent lamb and prepare it to eat, but as they did that, they were to take its its spilled blood and to paint it on the doorposts and the lentils of their house, so that as the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt that night and was was having no mercy in all the firstborn of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh's own son, that in that moment when that happened if the angel came by and saw that blood painted on their houses the angel of death would pass over now we have a picture of jesus's blood on the mercy seat do you understand that the blood painted on the doorposts and the lentils of your heart or that you're as it were being under the mercy seat so that when god looks down he sees the blood of his son that this points to the fact that this is our redemption jesus is our savior So they had this conversation with her. Why are you weeping? She said, I don't know where he is. Now, when she had said this in verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. There's at least two reasons why she might not have known it was Jesus, maybe three. One, she wasn't expecting him. She she assumed someone had moved his body. She assumed he was still dead. Number two, her eyes were filled with tears. And number three, in the story in Luke 24, we're told that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him. And we might wonder why. Well, in part, their eyes were blinded from recognizing who he was, but also uh, we are told in the book of Revelation that Jesus, as our lamb, still bears the scars of his crucifixion. And remember, in that process, through the mock trials, they beat him mercilessly. And if you ever saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, and you saw how bloodied and, and gored he was, it's quite possible that he was just purely unrecognizable from the man they knew before the crucifixion. So at either turn, she didn't notice that it was Jesus, and she said, "You know, she began to have this conversation with him." So Jesus said to her, "Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking?" She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, in that moment, the text here to me indicates that he said it in such a way that she recognized his voice. Or he said her name in such a way that only Jesus called her her name in that special way. And she turned and she said to him, Rabboni. So these were probably terms of endearment, so to speak, that they had for one another in their relationship. Now I'd like to point out to you at this point, something Jesus said in John chapter 10, where Jesus had that conversation with his disciples, talking about himself as the great shepherd. So in John chapter 10, verse three, it says to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So, this Mary, Mary Magdalene, had an opportunity not only to be the first one to see the Lord, but the first one to hear his voice. And so, she, like John 10, heard the voice of her shepherd calling her. So Jesus said to her, do not cling to me before. Obviously, she fell upon him. She gave him a hug. She fell at his feet to worship him. For I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. We've talked before about how many times that prophecy was fulfilled in, in little ways going through uh, the story of Jesus, and especially in the crucifixion. In Psalm 22, and I keep in mind, Mary came, did what, what he had said, and she revealed to the disciples saying, hey, I saw the Lord, I spoke with him, he's alive. In Psalm 22, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Now, Psalm 22 is Messianic talking about Jesus. Now, Jesus is going to come to them a little later. But certainly, we are to declare his name in the assembly to the brethren. We are to tell others about Jesus, not just those who don't know him. We should be telling them, but each other. We need to remind each other of these things. It's so important for us to speak these kinds of words to one another because isn't it true that we all get discouraged we all forget we all become downtrodden and for someone to come along and put their hand on your shoulder and say to you hey remember jesus is alive he's victorious whatever you're you're feeling or sensing is defeat remember he's already won the battle and we need to be encouraged in speaking to one another you see, the resurrection is the crowning proof that Jesus is who he said he was. Here's some of the other scriptures, and you know, I can't even list all of them. But, you know, it's impossible uh, to pull them all together and to do it in a very short period of time. But if you would like to read more about the resurrection, go to 1 Corinthians 15 and read it. It's sort of the, the crowning work on the resurrection from Paul's point of view. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So, Paul affirming that the scriptures were true as they spoke of Jesus. They're true about everything, but he's drawing their attention to the fact that they were especially true about Jesus. Now, in Acts chapter 2, we find Peter's uh, Pentecost day sermon. And in the course of that sermon, he said in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. So he was bearing witness and the other disciples there that Jesus was raised from the dead and we saw him. Now, of course, in the beginning, none of them believed that he was truly alive until Jesus revealed himself to them. But it's so amazing that Paul understood this. Paul Paul saw the resurrected Jesus, didn't he, on the road to Emmaus? Excuse me, on the road to uh, Damascus. Too many us's in there. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul wrote, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's saying that Jesus is... Life, Jesus' worth, Jesus proving who he was as Messiah, was by the resurrection from the dead. A little further in Romans 4, he can't get enough of this, he says, Romans four twenty four, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. In other words, it's necessary to have faith that Jesus was resurrected from the dead says, he was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. We're going to talk about that in a minute, what that means. But that Jesus was raised or resurrected because of our justification. In Romans 6, and we read this when we have baptisms, it says, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For we, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And so you see there's, there's a picture. When we baptize, when we go under the water, it's a picture of our dying with Christ. And the water is there symbolizing washing away our sin. And as we come up out of those baptismal waters... It's symbolizing us being resurrected to new life just as Jesus was resurrected. That's why baptism is so important. You don't have to to be baptized to be saved, but being baptized demonstrates that you are saved. It's a picture. It's an outward realization of an inward reality. And then later in that same passage in Romans 6, like I said, Paul can't stop talking about it, He says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no dominion over him. In Romans 8, that's the same letter. He says it again, Romans 8, 34. Who is he who condemns? That is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. In Acts 17, as Paul is preaching... He says, because he, that is God, has appointed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M, meaning Jesus, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That as sure as Jesus has been resurrected from the dead by God the Father, God will bring Judgment, God will cause all people to stand before him on one great day. And then our last example is in 1 Peter chapter 3, a verse we probably, many of us have underlined, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, you have to believe in the resurrection to be saved. That's a part of what it means to believe in Jesus. One commentator said, evidence that does not lead to experience is nothing but dead dogma. The key is faith in the word of God. Historical faith says Christ lives, but saving faith says Christ lives in me. Do you have saving faith or do you have historical faith? I hope you have saving faith. I'd like to close this morning by listing a few things that the blood of Jesus Christ has done for us. And I have 10. There's way more than 10. But here's a few. And so this morning, if you, if you are a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, maybe these things will sort of refresh your understanding of who he is and what he has done for you. And this morning, as you're listening, if you've never believed in Christ, then think of it like this. This is a part of God's benefit package to you. You know, when you get a job and part of taking a job is, well, what are the benefits? How many days off do I get? What do I get? Is the health coverage good? Are they gonna pay for stuff? Are they gonna give me money in my health savings account? You know, all that stuff we like to think about. When we think of God's benefit package, nothing can compare, right? saved from the flames of hell justified redeemed let's talk about it one of them is we're adopted we are adopted into god's family galatians 5 excuse me galatians 4 says to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons now you see adoption means in a sense you're homeless you're you're a child without parents or you're a child without a home and everybody wants a home. Everybody wants to belong, don't they? You want a place to call home. That's yours. But you see, the picture is that sin has separated us from God, that we are alienated and that we are without Christ. And you may say, yeah, but I have parents or whatever. But, but you see, sin has separated us from God, who is the only parent that matters in our life. And so we need to be adopted, and so God did what he did that we might receive the adoption as sons. Ephesians 1, 5, one of the, the clearest places says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So one of the things that the blood of Jesus has done for us is it's brought us to a place where God has adopted us into his family. That's something that you could could explore and study and and enjoy for for days. The next one is that we have been forgiven. Innumerable scriptures to talk about this, both Old and New Testament. Remember when Jesus healed people. He often said this to them. In the the case of the paralytic, remember the the man, they brought him up to the roof to drop him down through the roof because he couldn't get to Jesus. Jesus saw the faith, the faith of those people who brought the man. And he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And so when we read these stories like that, we don't just read them and go, hey, it was cool what happened to him. Because you see, we're, we're supposed to inject ourselves into those stories to understand that that's what sin does to us. That man had a physical, literal debilitating illness that he couldn't walk and he had to lay on a bed. But Jesus healed him. Jesus gave him new life through forgiveness. And so when Jesus said, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven, we're told in that, that parable, well, that story, actually, that he got up and walked. He rolled up his bed and went home. First time ever. Forgiveness. Forgiveness makes us whole. Forgiveness gives us new life. Luke 23, Jesus said, while he was on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So Jesus there pleading for our forgiveness. That was a part of what he did for us on the cross. In Acts 13, uh, Peter speaking, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. When you preach Christ, you are preaching forgiveness. So for you and me, that means we're forgiven. That means it's no longer held against us. Isn't this important in our relationships when we've wronged someone else that we ask them for forgiveness and to know that we've been forgiven? And isn't it equally important when others have wronged us and they have asked for our forgiveness and we forgive them? But isn't it equally important because this is the case of how it is with God that, you know, it says in Romans 5, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we even knew we were wrong, before we even knew enough to know that I needed to ask for forgiveness, He had already extended that forgiveness. It was there available. All we had to do was take it as He gave it to us. John says in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, I write to you, little, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. John writing to say, look, I want you to understand something. Your sins are forgiven. Even before you ask, they are forgiven. David wrote in Psalm 32, this is way before Christ. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So once we do become aware, we do want to ask for forgiveness. We do want to say sorry to the Lord. It's important for us to do that. Here's one of my favorite ones in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we've been adopted. We've been forgiven. We've been cleansed. This is important. Because to be cleansed means you're dirty. It means you needed to be made clean. And sin makes us dirty. Sin makes us unholy. Again, John wrote, 1 John 1, again, one of my favorite verses, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, a part of the evidence of, of our new life in Christ is the cleansing, the purity in our lives. John goes on two verses later to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgiveness. So forgiveness and cleansing go together to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe forgiveness is sort of the water of the cleansing. In Psalm 51, David said this after his sin with Bathsheba, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cleansing, so important. And in Hebrews chapter 10, as Jesus had, uh, we're told there, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, giving us the insight on what happened that day when the veil was torn. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Man, cleansing. Redeemed. Wow. Redemption. The word redeemed means to to buy back something you once owned. More literally, it means to be purchased back from the slave market of sin. So when you and I were born into sin, we were born into Adam's sin, we were born into slavery. Sin is slavery. And so a part of what we get in God's benefit package, the benefit of the blood of Christ... Ephesians one seven, in him that is Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So now redemption and forgiveness are together, right? They're linked. According to the riches of his grace, in whom we have, Colossians one, redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians four thirty. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we've been redeemed, but then there's a day when we will see him face to face and our redemption will be made complete, meaning we will fully realize what he has done for us. Romans 3 again, Paul just so full of God's love and grace, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through Jesus we are redeemed. And then finally in Titus chapter 2, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. In other words, there is no sin that Jesus's blood did not cover. There is nothing that you have ever done that is unforgivable. Do you understand that? So many of us walk around carrying guilt and sins of the past and we need to let it go. Go. Why? Blah blah blah. This is why it's so important. What Paul says in Colossians when he says, "Just as you've been forgiven, so should you forgive others." In other words, if God has forgiven you, and we go, "Yeah, man, praise God," and God has forgiven that person whom you're holding a grudge against, He's saying, "What right do you have to hold unforgiveness toward that person whom God has already forgiven?" So in other words, practice the reality is that just as you've been forgiven, so should you also forgive others. If you want that forgiveness for yourself, extend that forgiveness to others, just as Jesus would do. This is a great time when you're thinking those things to put your WWJD bracelet on. Say, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, he would forgive, obviously. So we need to forgive justified. Do you know what that means? It means we're made right before God. A a great way to remember the definition of justified is just as if I'd never sinned. We we, we could do hundreds of verses on this. Um, Romans 3, being justified freely by his grace. Um, There's so many, he just uses justification everywhere. Romans 4, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Uh, Romans 5, again a little later, uh, resulting in justification of life, meaning the work of Jesus. Romans 8, um, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So to be justified is to be made right, is to be, to be declared right. You see, God took our salvation very seriously. He didn't just say, ah, oh, you're saved, you're okay. These are all aspects or elements of our salvation, sanctified. To be sanctified means to be set apart and to be declared holy. You know, in in the Bible, often in Paul's opening remarks for his letters, he says, saints, I'm writing to the saints in Ephesus or in Colossae or wherever. And we've allowed other religions to sort of cloud our judgment here and to think, well, saints are people who've got documented evidence of at least three miracles and that kind of a thing. No, 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 no. God says, because you've been redeemed, because you've believed in Christ, you're saints. You're holy ones. In other words, this is our identity before God. This is how he's named us. This is what he calls us. He says, you are a saint. You say, I don't feel like a saint. And I would say, it does not matter what you feel. God has declared you holy. You are sanctified. You are set apart. Wow. That the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, but you were washed, you were sanctified. There's cleansing. Cleansing is a part of sanctification. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. It all goes together. So it's so important to realize that we are sanctified, that we are set apart, we are called apart. Now it's interesting that the word for church in the Bible is the word ecclesia, which means the gathering together of the called out ones. So it's the calling together of those who are sanctified. That's what church is supposed to be. Couple more reconciled. Reconciled means that the, the person who was offended, or who did the offending, rather, is being reconciled back to the person who was offended. So often I think we think of it backwards. We think of the one who did the offending as the, you know, when we say this, well, they didn't ask for forgiveness. Well, I'm not going to forgive them until they ask. God takes that in a very different way. God looked at reconciliation and he says, I know you're in such a helpless estate that you can't even say you're sorry. You, You don't even know what you did wrong. You ever had that experience with somebody? They, they're like clueless. They don't even know what they did to hurt you or to offend you. And so God takes it so seriously that he did the reconciling. He says, I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to reconcile you to me. Even though you should be the one asking for my forgiveness. See, reconciliation is such a beautiful word. Romans 5.10, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It's a part of the grace benefit package that God gives us. He reconciles us to himself. We could go on. Peace, Peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace, first and foremost, by definition, is peace with God. Meaning we're no longer an enemy of God. You see, our sin caused us to be an enemy. God had to look at us as an enemy. In a sense, God had to regard us as a terrorist because of our sin. Because we were under the influence of Satan. So God says, again coming back to Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning to see all the things that Jesus has done for us because of his shed blood on the cross for us. So I could go through another 10 verses on peace. But I can tell you this, 1 Corinthians 14, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches. You see, when we are caught up in confusion, we need to turn to God who is the author of peace and who brings peace to us, peace with God and the peace of God. We can never have the peace of God until we first have peace with God. Two more amazing benefits we get. One is that we will one day be glorified before his throne. Romans 8 tells us this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. As if it wasn't enough that I've been adopted, that I've been redeemed, that I've been justified, that I have peace with God, that he's reconciled me to himself, that he's done all these things for me. He's now saying one day we will be glorified in his presence. We're going to receive glory from God when we should be giving glory to God. Romans 8.30, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What an amazing thing that God would give us a place of glory in his presence. And here's the last thing, as if it Everything we've already been given in this benefit package is not enough. We have access to the very throne of God. At any time on any day, any moment, Hebrews 4, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you understand that's God's open invitation to you and me? Any time come right in and climb up on dad's lap and be in his presence and tell him what's going on. Listen to this, Romans chapter three, verse 21. This ought to blow your mind. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You talk about access to the throne of God. And these are all things that God has done for us through his blood. This is what Jesus accomplished for us as a part of our redemption. There's many more benefits. I only gave you a few. But my prayer today is that if you've never believed in and trusted Christ, I hope you have enough evidence, enough understanding today to know that he loves you. He loves you so much. He loves you so dearly. Paul, t- Paul tells us that <clears throat> you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. And if you do know him, maybe you've drifted away. Maybe you're not walking with him. This ought to be enough of a call to say, look, come back. You know, too often we, we carry this mindset as, that's, that's punitive, right? Or, or like penance. Like I have to earn my way back into somebody's good graces because of what I did. Here's the great thing. You never have to do that with God. There's only one step to getting right with God. God, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And he already has been. And he, he'll say to you, daughter, son, come on back. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Remember what he did? The word prodigal means wasteful. Right, The prodigal son said, I, I want to treat you as dead, dad. I want my half of the inheritance because I'm just kind of done here. I've had enough. So the father said, well, okay. And he gave him half of his inheritance and he went off. And what did he do? He gambled it away. He drank it. He squandered it. He, he, he did whatever. He, he completely wasted it. He ended up at somebody's farm eating from the pig trough. And one day he comes to his senses and he goes, I blew it, man. I screwed up. I lost it. Who knows how much money he blew? Hundreds of thousands, millions. I don't know what his inheritance was. But he said, you know what? At least the servants in my dad's house, they get it way better than I do. Maybe if I go back and just sort of cast myself upon his mercy, maybe he'll... Let me sleep in the last bunk in the corner of the last house at the very end of the row. The one that has no insulation and the beds are terrible. Says, as long as, if I could just get a seat there, maybe, and eat the, the, the dead corn husks that come from his table, maybe I would at least have better food than these pigs. And he goes back. And what happens? Do you remember that story, Luke 15? The father was there looking. He's like, I think, I think that's my son. And when he came back, he's like, kill the fatted calf, put a robe on him, welcome him back, for my son who was dead has come back. And if the story of the prodigal son doesn't melt your heart, then your heart is hard. There is no one that God cannot forgive, there is no one that God has not forgiven. So would you come to him today would you return to him if you walked away would you come to him if you've never come and would you please give your heart to him do you see how much he loves you do you see the benefit package that he's offering to you eternal life forgiveness of sin adoption into a family all the best benefits way better than anything on this earth and one day we will sit with him in heaven and if you want to say, well, what am I going to do? Go, We're going to get there in a few weeks because next week we start the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you have a picture of what's happening when the church is sitting in heaven around the throne of God. And what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord. Glory to the Lamb. They're just praising God. They're in his presence. They have everything they ever need. And all those questions that we have, you know, God, why did you do this? Why did you allow that? You know it's all going to go away. In his presence, it's all going to be answered. We're not going to have a document with, I have this question, here's the answer. We're just going to go in his presence and poof, it's all going to go away. In the presence of God, everything will make sense. But you know what? He offers that to us now. He's given us this. Lord, we love you. We bless you this morning. Thank you for this time together for Anyone who's been listening today, Lord, who's never turned to you, I pray that in this moment they would just turn and cry out to you and they would believe in you and that you would do as you said, that you would forgive them and give them eternal life and grant them these incredible things, these benefits of being in your kingdom and your family. For those of us, Lord, who maybe we've just been away drifting, we've been distant, Lord, this morning, like the prodigal son, maybe we need to come back. And just cast ourselves upon your mercy and fall into your arms. And know that we are received and that we are loved. We don't have to do anything to, to do penance. There's no, nothing we have to do to come back into your good graces. We don't have to earn our way back. As soon as we say, Lord, please, we're there. You've already forgiven us. It's already, the door's open. And so, Lord, may every one of us today rush in to that chamber to be with you. Thank you for what you've done, Lord. We can never say it enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.